Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This show contains mature content and adult themes. It may not be suitable for young audiences. In 2017, Harvey Weinstein was outed as a serial sexual abuser. Many brave women came forward and told their stories. They exposed one of Hollywood's most powerful moguls as a vicious sexual predator who operated horrifically and seemingly without consequences. But Weinstein was standing on the shoulders of monsters. For so many years, those monsters remained unchecked in Hollywood, shielded by the millions of dollars they made for their studios. Sex for fame is not new. In fact, it's as old as Hollywood itself. Today, we'll look at Errol Flynn, the Golden Age movie star who, at the peak of his stardom at age 33, was charged in 1942 with three counts of statutory rape. One of his accusers, Peggy Satterley, claimed that in 1941, when she was 15 years old, Flynn invited her to his boat, spiked her drink with liquor, and raped her. At the time of his trial, Flynn was one of the most well-known actors in Hollywood. He was famous for films such as The Adventures of Robin Hood, released in 1938, The Seahawk, released in 1940, and Dive Bomber in 1941, among many others. And that fame clearly influenced what happened during his trial. Today, using research from the Variety Archives, we'll take a look at how celebrity can impact a trial and how this sort of influence over a jury has been happening for decades. From Variety and iHeart Podcasts, I'm Tracy Patton. This is the secret history of the casting couch. Today's episode, When You're a Star. With me today is Matt Donnelly, Variety's senior entertainment and media writer. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, really interested today to dig into our first actor that we're discussing on the show. Yes, and it's about time. So what is it that drives some A-list actors, Matt, to commit sexual assault? Is it ego or power? Or maybe it's just because they think they're a star and they can get away with it. I think it's a really toxic combination of everything you just mentioned. Well, to put Errol Flynn and his dalliances with young women in perspective, let's look at an infamous sex scandal in Hollywood at the time. 
as Vanity Fair described it, the Patricia Douglas case in 1937 is probably the biggest, best-suppressed scandal in Hollywood history. Then as now, money is often the driving force behind most bad behavior in Hollywood. In 1937, near the peak of the Depression, MGM Studios grossed $14 million, which would be about $328 million today. This was far more than its rivals and twice the money the studio had made the previous year. Studio chief Louis B. Mayer announced that MGM's annual five-day sales convention would be held in Culver City. He promised the studio's 200 or so national sales force a super special production. According to Vanity Fair, after a long, drunken train trip, the salesmen arrived in Los Angeles and immediately began groping the starlets who were tasked with pinning carnations on their lapels. One of those so-called starlets was Patricia Douglas. Unlike the girls in the Flynn rape trials, Douglas was 20 years old, in other words, over the age of legal consent. She was, however, very much on the Hollywood scene before that, dating movie and stage stars like Dick Powell and William Frawley while still underage. Supposedly, famed comic Jimmy Durante was so smitten with her that he tried to convince her mother to allow him to marry Patricia— who was just 15 years old. At the big sales convention, Mayer wasn't subtle about the festivities he was offering his sales team. Vanity Fair reported that he told the hundreds of inebriated revelers, these lovely girls, and you have the finest of them to greet you, and that's to show you how we feel about you and the kind of a good time that's ahead of you, anything you want. Douglas was one of 120 young female dancers dressed in cowboy hats, bolero jackets, and short skirts, and transported to a large banquet hall. Vanity Fair described the nightmarish situation. Salesmen mistook the professional dancers for party favors and treated them accordingly. Without telephones or transportation, the young women had no means of escape. Tricked into attendance, then trapped into service, they were left to fend for themselves. A waiter at the event later testified that the party was the worst, the wildest, and the rottenest I have ever seen. The men's attitude was very rough. They were running their hands over the girls' bodies and tried to force liquor on the girls. That night, according to Patricia Douglas, one of those drunken MGM salesmen raped her. And when she tried to press charges, she discovered the power of the Hollywood studios— L.A. District Attorney Buron Fitz had been elected shortly after having beaten an indictment for perjury in a rape case involving a 16-year-old girl. A top contributor to his campaign was none other than Louis B. Mayer. What followed Patricia Douglas's attempts to receive justice was a sadly familiar campaign of studio finance publicity blaming and shaming the victim— the accused salesman was never charged. So really interesting insight into sort of a blueprint for a studio covering up an horrific crime like this. Uh, but let's talk about Errol Flynn's career. Yes, of course. Errol Flynn was probably best known for starring in The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. That same year, Life magazine named him the most famous man in America. He was in more than 50 A-list films and almost always played the lead. He was under contract at Warner Brothers for 20 years and made millions for them. 
Eventually, Flynn bought eight and a half acres on Mulholland Drive. He built a sprawling two-story colonial party palace in the Hollywood Hills and called it Mulholland Farm. It was a perfect secluded spot for his debauchery and sexual escapades. You know, Warner Brothers first took a big chance on Errol in 1935 at the start of his career. They gave him a lead in this pirate adventure movie called Captain Blood. I also believe he's synonymous with the word swashbuckling. I think you're right, Matt. And it was a huge hit. That led to starring roles in A-list films with the biggest names of the day. His co-stars included Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, and Barbara Stanwyck. He was also one of Hollywood's most self-destructive stars. He would try almost anything at least once. He started smoking weed in the 1930s. He claimed cocaine was an aphrodisiac. He told his friend, the British actor David Niven, that he'd tried every drug there was, except heroin. But mainly, Errol Flynn liked to drink. He was a regular at the celebrities' only nightclubs on the Sunset Strip, and his drunken brawls there were reported in gossip columns nationwide. After the bars closed, he might take the party with him up to his mansion on Mulholland and go all night. At the studio in the mornings, he'd secretly keep up his consumption by injecting oranges with vodka. It's actually kind of impressive and amazing that he could keep this up for that long. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But then, toward the end of 1942, things started to unravel. On Saturday, September 26, Flynn attended a party at the Bel Air mansion of Jack McAvoy, one of his closest friends. They were celebrating Jack's pending divorce from his wife, a standard oil heiress. Like Flynn, McAvoy was an adventurer, a world traveler, and, thanks to his soon-to-be ex-wife, filthy rich. The two men also shared a compulsion for cocktails and female company. It was a small party with maybe 10 or 12 people, including a number of attractive young women— Errol Flynn was playing tennis when Chi-Chi Knapp, Flynn's young friend from the studio, showed up uninvited. He had brought along a blonde girl by the name of Betty Hansen. Betty was new in town, straight from Lincoln, Nebraska. Like so many others, she had come to Hollywood in search of movie stardom. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The next day, Betty told her married sister about meeting the famous Errol Flynn. She said that he gave her cocktails and then took her upstairs and, as she put it, seduced her. Betty had just turned 17 six days earlier on September 21st. The age of consent was 18. Outraged, her sister contacted the district attorney's office to file a complaint against Flynn. As far as the DA's investigators were concerned, there was nothing unusual about the fact that Errol Flynn had had sex with a young woman. He was known for that. However, the big news here was that Betty was underage. That meant that they now had a huge Hollywood star on account of statutory rape. Or so they thought. Los Angeles County D.A. John Dockweiler took the charge to a grand jury. But after hearing from Betty, Chi-Chi, and other witnesses, the jury declined to indict Errol Flynn. And of course, it's hard to know whether the jury's decision was based on insufficient evidence or because Flynn was a huge star. Yes, and in the end, it didn't matter. Despite the jury's refusal to indict Flynn, D.A. Dockweiler ignored the jury's decision and indicted him anyway— That may be because another DA investigator remembered a similar complaint against Flynn from a year earlier. In August 1941, the mother of a 16-year-old girl had claimed that Flynn had sex with her daughter on his yacht during a trip to Catalina Island. The trip to Catalina was for a photo shoot for a feature about Errol Flynn for Life magazine. Peggy's role was to be eye candy and candid shots with Flynn. Like Betty Hansen, Peggy Satterley had movie star aspirations, and in the summer of 1941, her dream seemed to be coming true. It was on that trip that Flynn and Peggy had sex, twice. But before Flynn could be charged, the girl's parents had second thoughts. They called the DA and asked to have the charges dropped. Their daughter had a promising career in show business, and the parents didn't want bad publicity that might hurt her career. In the end, the DA charged Flynn with three counts of statutory rape, one charge for assaulting Betty Hansen and two for Peggy Satterley. And when Hollywood's biggest movie star was arrested, who did he call? Hollywood's most successful fix-it attorney, Jerry Giesler. Giesler was the attorney in our first Variety Confidential episode about the rape trial of Alexander Pantages. Pantages was a millionaire theater mogul who was accused of statutory rape. In the Pantages trial, Giesler set a legal precedent for weaponizing rape victims' sexual histories. Thanks to Giesler, Pantages was acquitted after the case was retried. Giesler credited that trial with making him a successful lawyer. 
He was known for getting Hollywood stars out of just about any kind of jam. His client list included Marilyn Monroe, Betty Davis, Charlie Chaplin, and mobster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. You know, these types of celebrity-endorsed attorneys are still around today, and you start to recognize the names of some of them if you pay close attention to any publicized trials involving a star. Yes, absolutely, and those publicized trials can be good for business. They really do get your name out there. For example, preliminary hearings don't often draw a crowd, but with Flynn as a draw, the courtroom was packed for his hearing in November 1942. When Betty Hansen took the stand, she said she went to the party at Jack McAvoy's house specifically to meet Errol Flynn. She first saw him on the tennis court there. After a swim, she stayed for dinner. Later, she followed Flynn into the sunroom. She said she sat on the arm of Flynn's chair and then slid down onto his lap. A little later, she said she got sick from the cocktails, so Flynn took her upstairs to lie down. It was then that they had sex. They were alone in the room for about 50 minutes, she said, and he complimented her breasts and her, quote, fanny. Peggy Satterley was called next. After testifying about the trips to Catalina, she was asked if Flynn knew she was underage. She said he did. But how did he know it, she was asked, because she said he called her his little JB, which stood for jailbait. Errol Flynn did not testify that day. I don't think it gets more incriminating than that. Yes. As reported in Variety, jury selection started on January 11, 1943. Jerry Giesler's plan was to seat as many female jurors as possible. He was betting that Flynn's star power would outweigh the women's disapproval of his having sex with underage girls. In the end, Giesler succeeded with his jury selection plan. There were nine women and three men in the jury box. When testimony started a few days later, Errol Flynn's fans turned out in swarms. They filled the courtroom and lined up in the hallway hoping to catch a glimpse of the big star. Peggy Satterley was the first accuser to testify. The prosecutor led her through events on the trip to Catalina and back. Afterward, Jerry Giesler for the defense opened his cross-examination by asking her what she'd done to resist Flynn on the ship. Did you scratch him, he asked. No, she replied. Did he tear your slip or your panties, he asked next. Not that I noticed, she said. Giesler then delved into Peggy's sexual history, a favorite tactic of his, victim shaming. He claimed she posed semi-nude for photographs, but did not show them to the jury. He asked her if it was true that she had had an abortion. She said yes. She refused to name the father, but insisted it was not Errol Flynn. On January 28, 1943, Variety reported that, taking the stand in his own defense and guided by questions of attorney Jerry Giesler, Flynn denied all charges of improper relations with minors Peggy Satterley aboard his yacht in 1941 and Betty Hansen at a Bel Air house party. Flynn remained stoic under a withering cross-examination by the prosecution. Very likely on advice from Giesler, Flynn followed a strategy that's familiar to us today. Deny, deny, deny. During closing arguments, Jerry Giesler reminded the jury about Betty Hansen's sexual experience and Peggy Satterley's abortion. His implication was clear. They were sexually experienced women, not innocent young girls. He also said that the whole case smells like a fix. The jury deliberated for 12 hours. When they returned, Errol Flynn and his attorney stood to face their judgment. 
The courtroom was silent as seconds ticked by. Finally, the jury forewoman read the verdicts. Not guilty on all three counts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before the judge dismissed the jury, he told them, the evidence was sufficient for you to have arrived at a verdict in either direction. Under the circumstances, I think you have arrived at a proper verdict. Errol Flynn was overjoyed. He pushed past the bailiffs, rushed to the jury box, and shook hands with each of the jurors. You know, this seems like a really good example of how superstardom can impact a case, and it's reminiscent of the recent trial of Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard, who also coincidentally played a pirate, a swashbuckling pirate in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes, in covering that trial, Variety's Gene Mattis noted that the most consequential decision the judge in the case made may have come weeks before the trial, when she allowed Court TV to operate two pool cameras in the courtroom. When Depp took the stand on Wednesday, live viewership on its channel peaked at 1.2 million. Those are some serious numbers. That same article also mentioned that observers worry that the judge's decision will also have a chilling effect on victims of domestic violence. 
One legal scholar said that allowing this trial to be televised is the single worst decision I can think of in the context of intimate partner violence and sexual violence in recent history. It has ramifications way beyond this case. Heard's legal team obviously wanted no cameras in the courtroom, but Depp's team argued for them, saying that Mr. Depp believes in transparency. Mm. And the case was eventually settled and ended with Amber Heard paying Depp $1 million, which his attorney said would be donated to charity. Exactly one year after the trial, the headline story in Variety read, Johnny Depp fans swarm can with screams and shrines on opening night. Viva Johnny! So when you're a star, then or now, the adage is true. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Variety was there after Flynn's trial, too. On February 8, 1943, Variety reported that Errol Flynn returns immediately to Warner's to appear in one sequence of the Thank Your Lucky Stars musical using all of the studio's top names. Flynn's sequence in the film had been held up while he fought charges brought on behalf of two minor girls. Variety also noted that the studio was rushing three projects into production for Flynn. But first, Flynn headed to Mexico for a little R&R. Apparently, he learned nothing from his ordeal. His companion on the trip was 17 years old. Her name was Nora Eddington, and he met her during the trial at a cigar shop in the courthouse lobby. You can't be serious. In 1954, Warner Brothers ended Flynn's contract. His films had made millions of dollars for the studio during his 20 years on the lot. But his compulsive drinking had begun to catch up with him. It took a toll on his biggest asset, his trademark good looks. Alcohol may also have affected his decision-making. In 1957, Flynn began a scandalous and very public affair with an aspiring dancer named Beverly Adland. He'd spotted her on the Warner Brothers lot and invited her to a nighttime audition at a friend's mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Adland was eager to accept, but first she had to ask her mother. That's because Beverly was serious jailbait. She was just 15 years old. She was pixie-ish and blonde and reminded him of a wood nymph, so Flynn called her his darling woodsy. The girl's mother, Florence Adlin, was surprisingly on board with their relationship, which was, of course, illegal. Flynn took Woodsy on an extended vacation. They visited Flynn's ranch in Jamaica and toured Africa and Europe. They were photographed dining and drinking in London and were mentioned in gossip columns at home and abroad. Somewhere along the way, Errol proposed. But his divorce from his third wife, Patricia Wymore, had not yet become final. And because Woodsy was not yet 17, in a rare show of discretion, they decided to wait a while before announcing their engagement. But the wedding never happened. In early October 1959, the couple sailed north from California in Flynn's yacht, the Zaka. He was broke. He had to sell his beloved Mulholland Farms in the Hollywood Hills, and his trip was set to end in Vancouver, where Errol planned to sell his boat. They stayed with some friends and partied for a few days. On October 14th, Flynn started to feel sick. His host had a friend who was a doctor, so they took Flynn to the doctor's home. Flynn seemed to improve, except that he was experiencing intense back pain. Despite the pain, the doctor and his wife invited a few friends over to meet the movie star. Flynn was regaling them with stories about Hollywood, but then suddenly turned pale and stopped. He said he needed to lie down. The doctor showed him into a bedroom. 
a few minutes later, Woodsy found him there in shock. His face was blue and his heartbeat was dangerously faint. They rushed him to the hospital where, on October 23, 1959, he died. The cause of death read, myocardial infarction, coronary thrombosis, coronary atherosclerosis, liver degeneration, liver sclerosis, and diverticulosis of the colon. He was just 50 years old. On October 21, 1959, Variety published its obituary for Errol Flynn. It read in part, Identified with swashbuckling screen roles, Flynn frequently was even more flamboyant in his private life. Since his discovery in 1935 by a Warner talent scout, he not only went on to become one of the ten top box office stars, but he also became renowned for his feminine exploits. Helping him in his pursuits were a magnificent physique and a dashing, roguish air. All due respect to the writer of that obit, but I don't know where to begin with how problematic that is. <laughs> um, biographer Kitty Kelly would call that myth-building, and I have never seen more myth-building. Helping him in his pursuits was a magnificent physique and a dashing, roguish air. That is, <laughs> that is, wow. So, Matt, Errol Flynn and Johnny Depp definitely had some similarities. What do you think they have in common in terms of having star power? I mean, I think... I think the obvious connection is throngs of fans and a public that really doesn't want to see their idols <laughs> sort of tarnished in this way. I That's mean, definitely the biggest thing. Truly, it is extraordinary. Flynn's trial, the amount of women that showed up that adored him, and this was astounding with Johnny Depp as well. But I think it all it also all feeds back into this idea of hero worship. Exactly. And you know, there is an interesting thing about the mystique of fame. Something happens with big stars with their fans. Yeah. They imbue these magical traits in them like yeah. they're beyond human. Absolutely. And it's not lost on me that many of the women um, Flynn was involved with were aspiring actresses. But more than that, I think the idea of fantasy, I mean, I can tell you three movies in production or that are about to release that have plot lines of mega famous men that find, you know, uh, just random everyday women and make them their lovers. And there's one coming out with Anne Hathaway where she falls in love with like a Harry Styles type and she's a mom. So <laughs> I think that these are kind of common fantasies that also, again, feed into idea of hero worship. One last question regarding the Me Too movement. Has that changed the pattern of male celebrities abusing their power? I would say um, yes, but certainly in the way that Johnny Depp's career will never recover. You really uh, think so? Absolutely. Okay. He will work with some directors, mostly European, as all we've seen so far. There may come a day where Johnny Depp gets cast in a major commercial film, but he'll never reach Captain Jack Sparrow-level fame again. The idea of eroding this myth of a sort of like unimpeachable male movie icon, I think, is is done. So I, I don't think that we're all the way there yet in terms of how we get justice and equity and certainly some relief for accusers and victims. But I think the good thing is, is that the more we actually speak the truth, uh, you know, the less these myths will prevail. Well put. Let's end with this quote from Errol Flynn and just a note about him at this age, at 25. He didn't set out to become a movie star. It was like Hollywood came to him and reeled him in because of his swashbuckling. His and roguish air. All of that. So that I find that very interesting, and that's why I find this quote especially interesting. We fritter our lives away in detail, but I'm not going to do this. I'm going to live deeply, going to affront the essentials of life, to see if I can learn what it has to teach, and above all, not to discover when I come to die that I have not lived. 
Well, thanks to Matt Donnelly for joining us. And thank you for listening to our final episode in season one of Variety Confidential. Matt, it's been truly a pleasure. I thank you so much. It's been so fascinating uh, digging into our archives and you guys have done such impeccable research. From Variety Confidential, this has been episode six of The Secret History of the Casting Couch, When You're a Star. We'll be back soon with season two for more sex, money, and murder in Hollywood. For Variety and iHeart Podcasts, I'm Tracy Patton. Variety Confidential is a production of Variety Content Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It was produced by Sidney Kramer, John Ponder, and Tracy Patton, and written by Stephen Gatos with John Ponder and Tracy Patton. Additional research by Karen Mizoguchi. Executive producers are Daya Lawrence and Steve Gatos. Variety Confidential is recorded, edited, and mixed at The Invisible Studios West Hollywood. Recording engineer, editor, and mixer, Charles Carroll. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.